Deanna. Hannah. Are you ready to record an episode of our podcast? I think so. Yeah? Yeah. Let's do it. What's our podcast called? It's called Good Witches, Bad Bitches. What's it about? Women. Oh. All right. From here, there, then, and now. That's exciting. We're not scholars, but we just like to talk about ladies. That get our excitement levels up. I didn't know how to say that without it being weird. It was weird. It still came out weird. (laughs) Creepy. I didn't know how to say it without being creepy. It's okay, because as long as this intro is this shitty, we're going strong. Stop calling our intro shitty. Well, now it's great. (laughs) That really took it to a level of professional that I didn't think we could achieve. You shut your mouth. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so sorry. (laughs) I love you. And I love this podcast. And it's my turn this week. It sure is. To talk about a lady. Let's talk about a lady. Are you a good witch? I've been a rebel all my life. We will not remain hidden figures. We have names. Oh, if it's naughty to rule your lips, take your shoulders, take your hips, and let a lady confess I want to be there. I didn't kid you, did I? Well, now you know. Okay. Do you have an intro? I do. That's I'm... kind of connected? Yes. And I'm going to, this is not meant to be a brag, but I kind of went viral last week with a tweet. And um, that brought me to the person who I'm going to talk about today. Hell yeah. So um, I just want to talk about that for just one second because people had some really great responses. And I'm using a little bit of what they've shared with me for this. So the tweet was, uh, thinking people of color didn't exist in medieval Europe isn't actually a neutral perspective that can be defended with, quote, that's just how it was. It's a modern white supremacist line that has leaked into the way we teach our history. Yes. And so a lot of people had really awesome responses and shared a few different articles with me um, in the wake of that. And it got me thinking about Well, obviously, people of color in medieval Europe. And the reason I tweeted that was because of the Green Knight trailer, which just came out, where Dev Patel is playing a one of the Arthurian legend, um, one of the characters from Arthurian legend. Yeah. And that character probably isn't like in the in the tradition of Arthur, technically a character, a person of color. But there are Knights of the Round Table who are people of color. Blah, 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 blah. This got me down a rabbit hole. And so I started looking at women of color in historical Europe. And um, I wanted to also really quickly just read this article that somebody shared um, on the tweet. And it's the beginning of a like three-part series or something like that. So it's just a short thing. But I thought it was interesting and a good sort of preface. And it goes, on January 2nd of this year couple years ago, The Economist published an article titled Medieval Memes, the Far Right's New Fascination with the Middle Ages. The most surprising part of that article was not that neo-fascist, neo-Nazi, white supremacist nationalists, i.e. the self-described alt-right, love the Middle Ages, but that The Economist is so late to this revelation. (laughs) Right-wing white supremacists both in Europe and in the U.S., have held a special place in their hearts for the Middle Ages since at least the beginning of the 19th century. 
Yes. For over two centuries, American slaveholders, the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, Nazi Germany, and today's white supremacist self-styled, quote, alt-right, have all promoted a twisted idea of the Middle Ages that props up their white supremacist fantasies. And unfortunately, their view of the Middle Ages has trickled into the groundwater of the broader popular historical consciousness. Depictions of people of color in films, TV series, and video games are practically non-existent. Those that do show people of color in this time typically only reinforce the paradigm, this paradigm. For instance, the 2001 film Black Knight makes comedic hay out of the idea that being black is at odds with being a knight. The Lord of the Rings films and books courted controversy by depicting people of color as dangerous outsiders fighting in the thrall of the Dark Lord. But the truth is, these Middle Ages are not the Middle Ages. The whites-only Middle Ages is vastly different from the medieval world that many scholars would recognize. And according to a study I conducted in 2008-2009, so let me see who the writer of this is, uh, Paul B. Sturtevant for The Public Medievalist. So we wrote, according to a study I conducted in 2008-2009, young people in the U.S. and U.K. think of the Middle Ages as existing only in England, Britain, or Western Europe. Some even instinctively have trouble seeing medieval Muslims as civilized, even in the face of contradictory evidence such as the many advances in science and technology in the medieval Muslim world. But scholars know that the medieval world was not limited only to England or Western Europe, and even if it were limited to only Western Europe, it would still feature the stories of a number of people of color. Over the past generation, a new crop of scholars have looked at questions of race in the Middle Ages much more carefully than before. They have found that, among many other things, medieval people understood ideas of race fundamentally differently than we do today. Over the course of the month of February, as a celebration of Black History Month, the public medievalist will be, slash did, publish um, a series of essays on several facets of this topic. So I'm going to link to this in case anyone is curious to go explore that further because it's clearly a very fascinating topic Um, but the goal of the series is to expose and tear down the white supremacist tainted version of the middle ages and to lift up some of the stories of those medieval people of color you may not have heard before Um, it goes on but that's the gist of it and while my person is not technically um, from the middle ages I thought it was interesting that the middle ages was you know the era that came a little bit before hers and that it's so different from the time period that she ended up being raised in Mm -hmm. and that a big part of the difference between the middle ages that they're talking about in this article and the era that we're going to be discussing today the 18th century late 18th century um was the slave trade Mm -hmm. like that was the the huge advancement and proliferation good god now i have mush mouth proliferation of the slave trade during that time in that in-between stage really reshaped our concept of race i mean obviously we've always had racism issues even in the middle ages spe- well it was or especially then, it sure. was it was like tribalism and i mean that just in its purest form of like yeah. this is my team and that's your team and you're us and we, or we're us and you're them and we're different yeah and like but when you know people did it wasn't as hum or was more homogenous within a culture because people couldn't travel as easily anyway yeah but um but yeah i thought that was an interesting preface and then to launch into researching this person and realizing how different things already were in europe even in 
only a couple hundred years later was really interesting. And so I know normally we do, um, or we've, we have often talked about African-Americans during Black History Month, but I thought this would be a really interesting branch off of all of those things that I, you know, went into a rabbit hole about uh-huh. last week. Yes. Who do you think I'm talking about? You seem to maybe know. I do. <laughs> and um, I have a funny story to tell you that we can cut out. But if you're doing the person I think you're doing. You mentioned her last week without meaning to. Mm-hmm. And it took everything uh, in me to I saw not... your eyes light up. That's how I knew who it was. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I have no poker face at all. <laughs> Are you a good witch or a bad bitch? Let us know by becoming a patron on on our our Patreon. Patreon. (laughs) Oh, no. Patreon is a service that helps content creators like ourselves keep the ship going and make sure that we're able to cover all the costs that uh, come along with doing our podcast. And the more patrons we get, hopefully the more content we can start creating exclusively for patrons. Yes. So if you are interested in something like that, please become a patron so that we can start creating that content for you. Also, when you become a patron, you will get a shout out on our podcast and we will thank you personally on air. How exciting is that? Very exciting. Yeah, yeah. You can find us at patreon.com slash podcast. Some of my sources today are thought, thoughtco.com, Wikipedia, um, a really great website called georgianera.wordpress.com where they like do serious deep dives into various facets of that era. Um, an article from The Guardian by Stuart Jeffries and um, blackpass.org. So I wrote a little a little thing. I said, it's it's been an interesting week. Through that tweet, I learned about an activist called Medieval People of Color who is raising awareness about diversity in history and art through Patreon and social media. That discovery led me down a rabbit hole of medieval and Renaissance art that depicted people of color in Europe, and they were not shown as primarily slaves or servants, but as aristocrats, socialites, merchants, and even some historical figures whom common knowledge say are white, um, common knowledge which the existence of these paintings puts into serious question. Right. For example... You've maybe seen this one, but there's a painting um, or a couple paintings of James Stewart or King James who ruled England and Scotland between 1603, beginning in 1603, um, where he has some arguably biracial features. He has a little bit, he's painted with a little bit darker skin Mm -hmm. and dark curly hair, a wider nose, um, etc. And then later paintings depict him as like with a narrow nose and pretty much white. The other one that I thought of was one that you actually pointed out to me, which is the German princess Sophia Charlotte of Mecklenburg Strelitz. I remember. Who became Queen of England when she married King George III, who reigned from 1760 to 1820. And both figures have been painted in ways that leave little doubt to their biracial roots. And they've been painted as lily white by later painters who were probably instructed to do so. Oh, by yeah. by whoever mean, was commissioning that painting. Also, hate to break it to anybody with delicate sensibilities, but Jesus was not a white man. Oh yeah, that's poof. That's a whole nother, whole nother can thing. of worms. <laughs> whole nother can of worms. 
Um, so all of that led me to a historical figure that I think is she's a little bit more well known um, because there have been some more materials made about her. And that is Dido Elizabeth Bell, who there was a movie about in what, 2012? 2014? 2014. 2014, starring Gugu uh, Mbatha-Raw. Am I saying that right? I think so. And my wife, I have the picture. Your wife, the person you love. (laughs) And it was all about her, this this woman who um, was portrayed alongside she was painted alongside her cousin lady elizabeth murray in this beautiful painting from the 1700s and she is very clearly of mixed race and her cousin is very clearly white and so that painting inspired the movie bell and it inspired me to talk a little bit more about her today because that movie didn't get everything right either bt dubs so most of the accounts I read said that she was born into slavery in the West Indies in 1761. Um, Which is the Caribbean for anybody who doesn't know. Yes, it's the Caribbean. And and she, like people of African descent who were in the West Indies at that time were brought there through the slave trade. Yep. Um, her father was a British Navy captain who impregnated a slave named Maria Bell. But according to the Georgian Era blog, which is fantastic um her mother maria bell was being transported on a spanish slave ship that her father captured on its way to the west indies and he sent maria bell who was pregnant with his child back to england where she then had dido interesting so she she gave birth in england and then she stayed in england and so dido actually lived with her mom for five years she lived with her until she was five years old in england in england because the movie portrays it as he goes to the West Indies and gets her, and there's really nothing discussed about her mother, yeah. and then brings her back to England. That seems to be the the weirdly, like, I mean, Wikipedia said that. There were a couple other places that said that, but I, I felt like the Georgian era blog had done so much more research, huh. and they had chronicled, like, I mean, every place that her father was in every month of that year. They had figured it out. So he did not go back to England with her. He stayed in the West Indies with the Navy. So her mom went, had her, and was still technically a slave. But she lived with her mom for those five years. And um, at five, she was finally baptized. Her father was not present, as we just said, so she was not given his name. Instead, Dido was named after her mother, Belle, her great-uncle's first wife, Elizabeth, Um, And we'll talk more about them later. And for Dido, who was the mythical queen of Carthage. Yeah. And um, Dido was also the name of a popular 18th century play, which her great uncle later said, it was probably chosen to suggest her elevated status. It says, this girl is precious. Treat her with respect. So from this point on, at John's request, at her father's request, she was put into the care of her great uncle and her great aunt, um, for whom she was named, William and Elizabeth Murray, who were also the Earl and Countess of Mansfield. So they were lo- a lord and lady yeah, with they um, were aristocrats. They were aristocrats with land and money and titles. In 1773, her mother Maria moved to Florida. At John, at John Lindsay's urging, at, at, at 
her father's urging to a plot of land where he tra- that he transferred to her mother's name in the wealthy British sector of Pensacola, Florida. How crazy is that? So her mom what left England. Land. Yeah. He, he gave her mom this plot of land where she lived until um, the Spanish gained control of the area in 1781 after the Battle of Pensacola. And after that, all record of her is gone. Interesting. But so she was with Dido for five years, and then she went to Florida because John Lindsay was like, hey, I've got land for you and a house. I mean, if Go. you were a slave in England, right. and then you, although I think slavery was illegal in England no. at that time. Not yet. Not yet and not, it wasn't even in technically. England, I think it was. It wasn't even technically a law, so it wasn't legal or illegal. And, I, and we'll get into a little bit of that you later. Know, uh, yeah. So Dido is in England. Her dad is off sailing in the Caribbean, stealing ships from the Spanish. And her mom is um, in Pensacola. All of this just contributes to Dido's mystery because without blood relatives or, you know, beyond her great uncle to claim her, she appeared to be like kind of this weird orphan, this potentially a slave or maybe she's a daughter or who is she right. um, person in the Mansfield house. Um, so a lot of people were really fucking confused <laughs> by her. But the the Lord and Lady of Mansfield were childless and they were already raising another great niece, Lady Elizabeth Murray, whose mother had died. So she and Dido were raised together as companions and aristocrats. Um, and this is, however, important to note that throughout this entire time, Dido was, on paper, the property of Lord Mansfield. She was technically a slave. Though she was never treated that way by the Mansfields, she was, on paper, a slave. Well, it was probably the, the legal loophole for them to be able to say, like, you can't take her away from us and nobody, like, she's, she's right. ours, meaning our family, because I know they cared about her very deeply but you know it's it's like you put something into language so that the bigots around you will be like oh okay yeah yeah i mean i think that it we was get it now. and i think it was also true i mean she was born to a slave meaning she was born a slave at the time like that's how they would have seen it right and so um and she was also illegitimate so yeah, she was also illegitimate. And so I honestly don't even know that they thought about it that much at the time, other than John Lindsay was a white man who was part of their family. And so he wanted her to grow up like she was part of his family. And that was kind of the the only real discussion about it. I think that they would have released her earlier, maybe, if um, if it, if they'd even thought about it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's very complicated. Like yeah, it's it, yeah. it speaks to how complicated all of that all of that was at the time. Right. Um, so Dido grew up at Kenwood, which was their royal estate outside of London, and she was allowed to receive a royal education. Also worth noting um, that her great uncle was a lawyer, a politician, and later a judge. So he was very intelligent and seemed to be fairly progressive in his thinking. And it would have been important to him to. Um, it would have been important to him that his wards have a good education. Right. Um, and that kind of, I did want to segue a little bit into one of his better known cases, which is Somerset versus Stuart. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So a little bit about that. Stewart was a white man, white British man who bought Somerset, a slave, in Boston in 1769 and then returned home with him to England. Somerset, the slave, escaped in 1771. And as retribution, Stewart imprisoned him on a ship bound for Jamaica where he planned to sell him to a plantation. Somerset had baptismal godparents in England, because you have to be baptized, apparently, um, <laughs> who wrote to the government and said, hey, you can't let Stuart do that. Like, Somerset doesn't want to go to Jamaica. His home is here. He was baptized as an Englishman. Like, he needs to remain in England. And so it was Judge William Murray of Mansfield who had to make the decision about what Stuart could or could not do with the man who was his slave. Um and he held that a person cannot be removed from England against their will. And since slavery had no basis in common law and had never been established by legislation in England and therefore was not binding in law, Stuart actually had no legal right to remove Somerset from England against his will. So, But also fascinating that even back then in England, I feel like in the United States... <laughs> even calling a slave a person was progressive. Absolutely. You had to dehumanize the people they that you property, planned to sell. They were property. They were people. Because, yeah, the, those... minute, the minute you start looking at them as a person is the minute you start having That's doubts. That's when things get muddy because then you're like, oh, well, they have thoughts and feelings and hopes and dreams and, exactly. and free will. Oh, no, they don't have free will. They're not free. And, you know, it's just like, and then you go, yeah, but they're human people. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, can't admit it because then... We have to face that what we're doing is awful. Yep. No, it is. It's very, like, weird and tricky. Mm -hmm. And actually, that that ruling to a lot of people meant that Mansfield was basically abolishing slavery. Like, he was basically saying, slavery is not a law here. So it's, you're not allowed. And even though, like, that didn't end slave trafficking... A lot of people saw it as proof that Dido and, and her presence in his family had turned him into an abolitionist. Which I can see why. Very possibly. However. Like when you start to recognize that people of color are not inferior because you see it in your own family and you have care for someone. Right. And you go, yeah, but she's not an exception. She's the rule. Right. So. But what's interesting is, is Mansfield maintained that he was not attempting to rule that slavery was, should be abolished. He was, this was purely for this one case. And he saw it as only applicable to this one case. So kind of strange, right? Like he had yes this, no. this young woman of mixed race living in his home that he treated as a daughter. Mm. And then he ruled in such a way on this case, but he still couldn't say, I see slavery as inherently wrong, period. He said, I only think that it makes that this makes sense in this one case. I wonder if. And. Maybe this would make him slightly less courageous than, you know, he could have been. But I wonder if it's, you know, because he felt it was safer that it's not up to him alone to make when the prevailing opinion in the country is something that's not necessarily what he wants to say. But it's not 
his position, even though it could have been. Right. But, you know, aristocracy tends to be a little more conservative and especially like I feel like British culture to make a broad sweeping general statement, (laughs) um, it's it tends to be very like reserved. And so, yep. Especially back in the 18th century would have been very complicated and very brash and bold. Yeah. To make a broad sweeping statement. Not that that excuses it. And he could have. Right. But I'm just positing. Yeah. No, and I think it's an interesting argument. And I think that he was very much a man of rules and the law. He was a politician. And I think that he, to see it as anything other than a ruling on one case and one case alone would open him up to, like, the the that argument that he's calling for abolition of slavery which is a much bigger thing than he probably wanted to even try and deal with at the time yeah because it would have been not politically popular yeah it would wouldn't have been politically advantageous and it probably could have endangered him and his family potentially right and their position and their comfort and dido's position exactly yep like he he probably would have been more empowered to give his actual opinion if he didn't have a woman of color living in his home <laughs> right and felt like he needed to protect her yeah but it's also possible that his opinion might have been different without that woman of color living in his home true enough totally like it's so complex yes um now i i should have looked up how to say the screenwriter the screenwriter's name for bell mm. mizan sagay okay Sag- sagay so I looked up the pronunciation for her name, and I I couldn't find a good one, so I apologize. But the screenwriter for Belle, Mizan Sagay, said that the Earl appeared to treat Dido nearly equally to her completely European cousin. And this seemed to be especially true later in life, when he was getting on in years. Um, the family purchased the same luxurious items for Dido that they did for Elizabeth. And quite often, if they were buying, say, silk bed hangings, they were buying for two. Um, Sagay believes that the Earl and Dido were very close, as he wrote about her with affection, affection in his diaries. Friends of the family, including Thomas Hutchinson, the governor of the province of Massachusetts Bay, hmm. visited them at one time and also noted the close relationship between Dido and the Earl. It was just, like, very affectionate. She used to... Um, do his like accounting and um he would dictate letters to her that she would write for him and like little things like that which was not a thing women did period at the time but he just they you know he recognized her intelligence and he he trusted her with things like that so a 1779 painting of dido and her cousin elizabeth which now hangs in scotland's scone palace Shows that scone palace. It's spelled scone. I hope I'm. Maybe it's scone. I think the British call it scone. Maybe it's scone. Don't um, quote me on that. Somebody maybe will tell me. Um, I'm sure they will. <laughs> I'm sure they're screaming. At me. Yeah, don't scream at me, please. Um, the painting shows that Dido's skin color did not give her inferior status at Kenwood. In the painting, both she and her cousin are dressed in finery. Also, Dido is not positioned in a submissive pose as black subjects typically were in paintings during that time period. This portrait, the work of Scottish painter David Martin, is largely responsible for generating public interest in Dido over the years. And not just because she's dressed well and her pose is not submissive. Um, 
she's standing just behind her cousin. She is smiling and pointing to her cheek. It's a very interesting pose. While with uh, a wearing, Mona Lisa smile. With a Mona Lisa smile. Yeah. And she's wearing a silk turban. Um, and the whole thing is just super baffling for a lot of art historians. Some say that Elizabeth was painted, her cousin was painted in a solo portrait and that it was requested Dido be added in later. Some say that the turban was a way to try and, quote, Indianize her to make her seem like an exotic figure rather than the mixed race daughter of a, of a former slave. Um, the researchers at the Georgian Era blog, which I trust them because they had so much research, insist that her silk turban and her fine clothes in this particular portrait are not a costume for the portrait itself, but a gift sent to her by her father after a trip to India. And that, that she's would make sense. wearing these clothes that he gifted her. That would make sense. But so it's interesting. Like, he clearly still thinks of her. She is... And fondly. And fondly. She is considered to be a enough of a part of the family to be painted alongside the woman who technically was her, you know, sister in a way. Yeah. Even though they weren't adopted necessarily. They were just wards. But still... They were um, raised as sisters. They were raised as sisters. Um, yeah. So according to Wikipedia, the social conventions of Mansfield's household are somewhat unclear. When the Mansfields were you entertaining, <laughs> yeah. When the Mansfields were entertaining, Belle did not eat with the guests. A 2007 exhibit at Kenwood suggests that she was treated as a loved but poor relation, which I'm not entirely sure what that even means, and therefore did not always dine with the guests, as was reported by Governor Thomas Hutchinson. Mm. He said that he observed Belle joining the ladies afterwards for coffee in the drawing room, but that she didn't go to dinner. In, right. in 2014, author Paula Byrne wrote that Belle's exclusion from this particular dinner was pragmatic rather than custom. She notes that the aspects of other aspects of Belle's life, such as being given expensive medical treatments when she needed them and luxurious bed, bedroom furnishings, were evidence of her position as Lady Elizabeth's equal at Kenwood. Right. And as Belle grew older, she took on the responsibility of managing the dairy and poultry yards at Kenwood. This was a typical occupation for ladies of the gentry, but helping her uncle with his correspondence, which she often did, was less normal. Um, this was normally done by a male secretary or a clerk. Belle was also given an annual allowance of 30 pounds, which was several times the wage of a domestic worker at the time. By contrast, Lady Elizabeth received around 100 pounds, but she was a beneficiary in her own right through her mother's family. Right. So Belle, even aside from the fact that she was, you know, biracial, was illegitimate in a time and place when great social stigma usually accompanied that status. Right. So, which is separate because that would have been the yes. same treatment for a white illegitimate child as well. Exactly. Yeah. So when Lord Mansfield passed at the age of 88 in 17... Jesus, I know. For that time. He did well, right? Um, in 1793, he released Dido from slavery in his will. Oh. Uh, which she was never treated as one, but I know that that probably loomed over her head her entire way, life. It was a protection so that nobody could be unclear in his passing exactly what was going to happen with her. It was going to be... She can do whatever the fuck she wants. Yep. She and Elizabeth were both left a large inheritance. And Belle also inherited money from Lady Marjorie Murray, 
one of two female relatives who would come to live with and help care for the Murrays in their later years. So she was loved enough by another Murray relative to receive inheritance from her later on. After her great uncle's death, Dido married Frenchman John Devigné, who was not a lawyer like he's portrayed in the movie, but he was just um, a, a valet. He was a, you know, Ballot. a working dude. He was a working guy. But um, white? But white. French. And together they had three sons. Um, they were very happy. They married for love. Yep. Super nice. And this is kind of sad. I didn't realize she died young. She died at the age of 43 in 1804. Yeah, I think I knew that. Which I don't, I, I didn't find a lot of info on how, but, you know, she passed and she had three beautiful children. And, um, you know, she died a free woman at a very odd time in England's history. So... All of that to say, Dido was a very interesting figure in um, the 18th century aristocracy of England, and clearly very puzzling, even to this day, for art historians and just, like, general people looking into her story alike. Um, but I just thought it was fascinating. Just through the how... How... Writing that tweet and then seeing all of this, these people res, people's responses and then diving into art history and seeing so many incredible paintings from the medieval period beyond right. with people of color in them in, you know, every kind of um, job and stance you might think of to in this. In European society. In European society. And and finding myself at Dido Elizabeth Bell and her story it was just so interesting. But that's that. I love her. That's Dido Elizabeth Bell. As portrayed by Gugu and Bathara in the movie Bell. What's the director's name? Ama Asante. Ama Asante. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. And um, that's that. Yay! I love it. Do you have anything you want to add because you have seen the movie and you love the movie and questions, comments, you know, anything like that? No, I think you covered a lot. And the questions I had, I kind of inserted as we were going. Yes! I was a little worried because I knew you had seen the movie and loved the movie, but... You still haven't seen it, right? I still have not seen it. You gotta watch it. I kind of didn't want it to... I thought about looking up, like, clips or no, looking no, no, up, you know, stuff no, like no, that. No, no. But, um, yeah, I didn't want it to influence there is a a really wonderful scene where she like is questioning she's like what how is it you know proper that i'm i'm too high in rank to dine with the servants but too low in rank to dine with my family it is a really really interesting question interesting question um and shit i just realized i think that like concludes our black history month i think so technically yeah um not that we don't talk about black women (laughs) outside of black history month yeah it doesn't really matter all that much for this podcast for the purposes of this podcast but i just the last week of february i thought that was a good one to kind of like end on and be like yeah this has always been like this like we've always been here right and anybody who's like oh it's like so stupid to insert people color in these like medieval games and medieval movies and blah 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 it's like shut you sound like a fucking moron 
you just sound like an idiot. And hopefully I told you a little bit about why. Yes, you did. Thank you. Now, I have some on this day. Lay it on me, girl. I probably did too many, so maybe I'll try and... um, (laughs) I cut out so many. Yeah, I'll probably cut a few out as I go. It's February 26th. On this day in 1616, uh, the Roman Inquisition delivers an injunction to Galileo demanding he abandon his belief in heliocentrism, which (gasps) states the Earth and planets revolve around the sun. Uh Uh-oh. Um, 1863, Abraham Lincoln signs the National Currency Act, which establishes a single national U.S. currency. Yeah, I think it was state to state until then, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. We. I know. 1869, the 15th Amendment, which states the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude is sent to the states for ratification. Right. 1917, the first jazz records are recorded. Dixie Jazz Band One Step and Livery Stable Blues by um, original Dixieland Jazz Band for the Victor Talking Machine Company. Talking Machine. Mm Mm-hmm. That's right. I love jazz. 1917, the Russian February Revolution. Tsar Nicholas II orders his army to quell civil unrest in Petrograd and the army mutinies. Yikes. 1924, trial begins against Hitler for treason in the Beer Hall Putsch. Putsch. An abortive attempt by Adolf Hitler and Erich Ludendorff to start an insurrection in Germany against the Weimar Republic. So glad they cut that off at the head. Oh, yeah. 1983, Michael Jackson's Thriller album goes number one and stays number one for 37 weeks. Uh, uh. (laughs) Um, So many feelings about that. So many feelings. I know. And this is going to be my last one. and I'm very sorry about it. Sorry about it. 1993, the World Trade Center bombing of 1993. A truck bomb explodes in the parking garage of New York City World Trade Center at 12.18 p.m., killing six and injuring over a thousand in what was, at the time, the deadliest act of terrorism perpetrated on U.S. soil. That's really weird that it was the deadliest act and then the next one that blew it out of the water, pun really not intended. Um, Oof. Was the World was Trade Center? Was also at the World Trade Center. Left it at that. That was the last. The other one was about like Oprah and a defamation lawsuit about beef. And I was like, I just don't want That was a great one, though. Do you want me to read it? Oprah's lawsuit. She was like the one woman who could take down the beef lobby. <laughs> she was found not guilty in beef in, in the beef defamation trial brought by Texas cattlemen. Yeah, because she said on her show... Hey, beef is giving people heart disease. Maybe we should eat slightly less beef. And it was just like a, a comment she made. And then beef sales went down. She actually made an impact. And so. Oh, shit. I knew nothing about this. The Texas beef industry was like, well, fuck, let's sue Oprah. And she's the only one who had the resources to take to actually like go to court for it. Because that's what they do to fu- this is all my fucking big agribusiness bullshit. That's what they do to small farmers who, who like have small infractions on things that they want. Then they fucking lawyer up and take these these working class citizens to court and they cannot afford to go up against these multi-billion dollar companies. But Oprah fucking could. And she won. And it was great. 
I am so glad you knew all of that because all I had was the honestday.com single line about Oprah's defamation mm-hmm. lawsuit. And I was like, I don't want to talk about Oprah and beef. That sounds weird. No, it's... it's but you've got the info. I do. I love it. <laughs> uh, are you excited about anything this week? I think you are. Well, I mean, it's not about future, future things. I know in the last in my things I was excited about, I talked about... Uh, the fact that I was about to go to Disney World, mm-hmm. um, which Alex didn't know at the time of recording, but I knew that the time the episode dropped, we would be there. Yeah. So I was like feeling a little naughty talking about it because it was still a secret. <laughs> but I surprised him and it was great. And um, the trip was amazing. And we went on all these really revolutionary rides that are, I think, going to change the, the the future of ride theming and because it's just people are starting to realize that I guess maybe for our generation in particular to make a ride exciting it doesn't necessarily have to be about how fucking sick it makes you or how (laughs) much trauma it puts your body through like we want excitement and thrill in our rides for sure but having like a story that we can connect to and an adventure that we feel like we are genuinely on. You know, our generation are very sophisticated story consumers. Yes, we are. So I get that. And so like if you have intellectual property that people are already attached to, then then they can really latch on easily. But I mean, Star Wars, everybody is already attached to. But when we went on Rise of the Resistance, and I won't go into too much detail here. We can talk about it after we stop recording. Fair enough. But it is... You feel like you're a new recruit to the resistance and you were taken on a journey and all the people who are like the line guards basically are acting as a part of the story that you find yourself in. That's so cool. Like on the Rise of the Resistance ride, you go from having resistance people welcoming you to the ride to the resistance Mm -hmm. and then you get captured by the first order and then the people who bring you into the waiting rooms are mean and I'm like they're allowed to be mean to you like what Disney employee is allowed to be mean to you and call you stupid oh no I love that there was like one moment where they they told this guy to go wait in a line and there was a person standing at the front of it like a first order person and so I was in one of the lines and this guy was supposed to be the front of the next line. And he, for some reason, just kept walking because he didn't see that he was supposed to stop. Oh, I guess no. he didn't know that the line on the floor meant that's. Oh, and no. so the employee, excuse me, cast member was like, why are we still walking? <laughs> and he goes, oh, I don't know. I didn't. I thought. And, and he goes right here, please. <laughs> oh, boy, the resistance really sent their best and brightest today, didn't they? And I was just like, oh, my God, this is the best. They must have so much fun being able to say everything they wish they could fucking say. Oh, my God. Yeah, because when they're playing Jasmine or whatever, like, they just have to smile and be sweet. Oh, yeah, but those like, princesses get groped by dads all the time. No, ew. And, and people who try and get them to break character by doing, like, rude things. No. But, yeah, no, it's, it's, I feel like it must be a nightmare to deal with people on mm. any level. I couldn't deal with them as a, a fellow patron. No. Um, but <laughs> But the trip was super fun. We ate lots of good food. And other than the, you know, costochondritis that I had from when I had the flu, which for anybody who doesn't know, because I didn't, Mm-mm. it's inflammation and irritation of the cartilage that connects your ribs to your breastbone. <gasps> So I got that when I was sick with the flu oh, and was coughing shit. so much 
and feel very frustrated that the doctor didn't give me prescription cough syrup. But I understand why, because too many people abuse that shit. But anyway, I digress because that led me to have such intense coughs that I had irritation of that. And then going on rides made it worse. Oh, no. And I didn't realize that was going to be a thing. But I didn't want to stop going on rides because I paid a lot of money to go on rides. <laughs> oh, it's so complicated. So I dealt with it and then went to the doctor when I came back and got x-rays to make sure it wasn't something serious. Good. Um, but the trip was fantastic. I love it. And I highly recommend everybody going on the new uh, Hagrid ride at Universal because I think it's going to change the future of roller coasters. Oh, shit. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Well, and with that juicy tidbit, we're going to have to go look and talk about all of that stuff. Um, But you guys just get to look into it for yourselves. YouTube has all the ride-throughs. Ooh, there you go. Um, That's a great tip. Yeah. Find us on social media, guys. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, pretty much everywhere. No LinkedIn, but that makes sense. Um, <laughs> at GWBB Podcast. Um, you can email us at GWBBpodcast at gmail.com. We're on ko-fi, ko-fi.com slash Podcast, Or you can become our patron, which is like our favorite kind of people, um, at patreon.com slash Podcast, guys. I think that covers covered it. it all. You did it all. Thank you. Rate, review, subscribe. Rate, review. Yes, please review. We need your reviews. That's important right now. Do it. If you love Especially us, go do it. Especially if you love the podcast. Like, we love constructive criticism reviews, too. But at the same time, it's like people on Yelp only want to leave a Yelp review when they want to leave a shitty review. So if you love this podcast, go leave us a review. Yeah, please do. We will love you forever. Because that, you know. Because we'll love you forever. It will It will be more indicative of, like, the actual population of people who listen to <laughs> right. Not that we have a lot of bad reviews. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that you should leave a positive review when you feel positively about things. I've been trying to do that more lately. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Yes. Ditto. Um, and on that note, peace out, witches. Bye. Bye. See you next week. Thank you for listening to Good Witches, Bad Bitches. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is hosted by Deanna Greif. Me. You. And you. <laughs> Hannah Ferguson. And we're produced by Benjamin Garst. Um, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. Google Play. Google Play. Pretty much more. anywhere you listen to your podcasts, you can find us there. We're also on social media. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, GWBB Podcast. You can also email us at gwbbpodcast at gmail.com. We love to receive emails. If you have a story about a woman in your life that you want to hear on air, uh, shoot it over to us. We would love to read it. If you want to help keep us running, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gwbbpodcast. <laughs> Become a patron and help us, you know, pay for our hosting. Yeah, Patreon really helps content creators be able to continue to create their content. And it just kind of helps us break even on the costs of producing this podcast. And it would be really awesome if you wanted to help out. If you like it, you can be a part of it. Also, to help us out, you can rate, review, and subscribe. All of, the, all of those things are extremely helpful for us. They help other listeners find us. Yeah. Word of mouth, also good. Yeah. (laughs) Our website is gwbbpodcast.com. You can find all of our episodes there as well as some other things bubbling out of our witchy cauldron. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is powered by Moon Bounce. Bounce.